to Matthew, first book in the New Testament, um, which is about 80% of the way towards the back of the book. So grab the Bible, go there. Uh, if you need note, note sheets, they're on the back, back there as well. So we've been following this storyline of God in the Bible. And we started in the beginning with God before creation. Like, who was God before there was creation? We started with that over a year and a half ago. And we've been following this thread where God created everything. He created Adam and Eve. He created the first man and woman and put them in this perfect place in a perfect environment with him. Uh, But they chose to build their own kingdom instead. And when they did, God told them sin would enter the world. When sin enters the world, death enters the world. They still chose that path. So... Sin entered and so did death into all of creation. But God made a promise to Eve in that moment that a child from her own lineage, uh, a seed of woman is called, would redeem, would make right, would restore, would destroy the works of death and Satan and all of that. And so all of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 forward is anticipation of this seed of woman. And you follow that through uh, lineages, down through name after name, until the world becomes so wicked that God destroys it through a flood. But he preserves this, this seed through a family. You know all that. And then on the other side of the flood, that continues on. And, and Noah and his family begin to reproduce and populate the earth. And after some time, God identifies one particular individual by the name of Abraham and brings him back to a land that is special to God and says, this is going to be where I present the seed. This is where my promises are going to be fulfilled, and it's going to come through you, Abraham. And then Abraham has a son who? Isaac, exactly. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob, and then Jacob's name is changed to Israel, exactly. And so God's seed continues down. Then Israel has 12 sons, and those sons all have families, and those families grow until they become tribes within the greater big family. And that family, huge family of all 12 tribes ends up in Egypt, and they end up in slavery in Egypt. And God raises up a man, Moses, to go to them and deliver them and lead them out. And Moses brings them out and brings them into the desert first and brings them straight to meet him. And he gives them something. What does he give them? His word. He gives them his word. He gives them the law so that they know who God is. They know how to know what he likes. And And then they lead them. Then Moses leads them to this promised land. Ultimately, they they, uh, hide in fear. But after 40 years, they return back. And God leads them across by the name of a guy by the name of Joshua. And they go into this promise, this land that was promised to Abraham centuries before. And now they're in the land. And things should be great, but they're not because sin is still there. So sometimes they're doing really good. And sometimes they're doing terrible And God raises up these judges who help deliver them and try to guide them for a while, but then they'll flip back into sin. And then another judge will deliver them, and they flip back, and this cycle goes on. And then they cry for a king, and God gives them a king. Who's their first king? Trick question. God, exactly. God was their first king. So they were frustrated that that God was a bit frustrated, but he gives them a king as Saul. And then another king, David. And then another king, Solomon, who's a descendant of David, uh, David's son, and then Solomon, after him, his son and his servant split the kingdom in half. And now this place of Israel has become divided, and you have these two kingdoms. 
the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in 722 B.C., historical fact, you can look it up, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom and scatters them everywhere. And then in 586 B.C., Babylon destroys the southern kingdom and takes them exile for how long? Seventy years, exactly, seventy years. But God returns them back to Israel and they come back. But when they come back, what do they do? Right back to the same cycle of obedience and sin and obedience and sin. And so God goes silent for 400 years. During that time, Babylon is conquered by Persia. Persia is conquered by Greece. Greece is conquered by Rome. And Israel stuck right in the middle of it the whole time. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom running over them and through them and controlling them. And then there's a star in the sky that's unexplainable. After all these millennia, there's a star in the sky that's unexplainable. And a woman has a child in a miraculous way. Mary, being a virgin, gives birth to a child. An impossible scenario, but it's the seed of a woman. It's a fulfillment of what was promised genera- or, or millennia ago to Eve. And so he's here. And that's where, we've been, that's where we are now. We've been looking at his life and his presence on the earth. And he did amazing, incredible things, including raising the dead. But yet people still don't believe. Some, many do, but many don't. And as he begins to make disciples, he also realizes that he's making enemies. Not that he didn't know. But the Jewish religious leaders are enemies. Uh, enemies everywhere. Some of his own disciples are enemies. People all around him become uh, at him, challenging him despite the miracles that he does. And eventually they cry for his death. They don't want to put him to death. They say they can't put him to death. They want Rome to do it. So the Jews uh, create a mob, deliver him to the Roman governor and demand his execution. The Roman governor interrogates him. This is what we talked about last week. Interrogates him, but can't find a good reason to do it. So desires to set him free, but can't. And that brings us to where we are today with a crazy title, Killing God. And I know that's a crazy title. I get it. Um, But if you haven't figured it out already, Jesus is God. Spoiler alert. Jesus is God. I know it's impossible to fully comprehend. I got that. How can God be three, Father, Son, and Spirit that act independently, yet also never separately? It's something that makes him God and us not. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's okay. He is a multiple unity. Think about it. He's a singular plurality. He is a family individual. All words that for us are opposite words, but they're not for him. And look, here's the thing. You don't have to define him to believe in him. Don't have to define. He breathed the universe into existence. It's okay that you can't clearly define him. It's perfectly okay. So the question is, who killed then Jesus? Was it the Jews? Is it the Romans? Is it us? Is it you and me? You probably heard teachings about the cross, and I'm not going to invent something new. We're going to talk about it, but I'm not going to invent anything new. Uh, The cross should be familiar to you in some ways for sure anyway. But 
It should never leave you unmoved. Anytime you talk about it, it should never leave you unmoved. Even if you're familiar with it. There's crosses everywhere. I get it. Necklaces, earrings, you know, signage. I got one tattooed on my arm. You know, I get it. They're, they're all over the place, and that's cool. And we should celebrate it because of the victory that Christ gained for us on it. But the cross was a mean, horrible, terrible, evil, wicked thing. At least in what it was created for. So over the next couple of weeks, this week and next week, we're going to consider the cross. And here's what I want you to focus on. Just hold these thoughts in your mind. What it really means to love your enemies. Think about that when we talk about this cross. What does it really mean to love your enemies? What does it really mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Think about that when we're talking about this. And then, really, this is the one that always gets me. How much does salvation really cost? And how ugly is sin really? Paul had a profound understanding of the cross. And this will be up on the board. But in 1 Corinthians 1, 18... He said, for the word of the cross is a joke, folly, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. How can the cross be powerful? Well, the cross is powerful because only in the cross do you have love and justice in the same place. Only in the cross do you have both insane love and complete justice in the same place. So here's your verse to remember. Uh, or not your verse, I'm sorry, your point to remember is not a verse. Let me repeat that, it is not a verse. This is me. So it's kind of your little uh, uh, torch to help guide, guide us through where we're going today. Jesus' death on a cross shows how far God will go to save us and also reminds us how far we are from saving ourselves. Jesus' death on a cross shows us how far God will go to save us, but it also reminds us how far we are from saving ourselves. All four Gospels tell the story, and we're going to lay into the text here in just a second, but I'm going to give you the story quickly, and then we'll pull into it a little bit. But Pilate, as I mentioned before, the Roman governor, reluctantly orders Jesus' crucifixion to satisfy the Jewish crowd. So if you're in Matthew, look at Matthew chapter 27. Um, And we'll pull a couple of verses here, and then we're going to go to another passage. So we're going to be in two passages today. Some of the verses are up there. Some of them won't be. Y'all already know how this works. That's because I want you to take your Bible with you. I don't want you to watch a show. I want you to take, if you're scrolling or holding it, however you do it. So Matthew 27, verse 31, it says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. You can read this in your own time. We're going to come back in in a minute. But all four Gospels record it. From this point forward, Jesus carries his own cross beam, the beam that's going to be be nailed to. He carries it himself through the streets. He is so beaten and so uh, crushed by Rome already that he can't carry it. He collapses multiple times. They pull Simon, a guest who is in town, a visitor, I should say, not a guest, a visitor who's there for Passover. It's Passover week. Grab him out of the crowd and make him carry the cross for Jesus. Jesus arrives at Golgotha, which means hill of the skull. He arrives at this place where he's going to be crucified. He's laid flat on his back. His hands are nailed to this crossbar piece of wood that he's been carrying. Uh, both of them. You don't, I don't have to go into this detail. We, you can look it up and read it. You can watch movies. You can do it and see how horrible it is. But just the words, hands are nailed, is bad enough. You understand? Hands are nailed to this cross beam, and then they would have secured that cross beam to another beam and then raised it upright, and either his feet were nailed 
together onto it at that point or while it was still on the ground. But his feet are nailed together on it. And Jesus hangs for hours. Hours. And he lifts his weight to take a breath in excruciating pain, pushing against the nails, and then releases his weight. And the pain subsides a bit, but he can't breathe. And that is the picture of what that cross is about. He's mocked by the crowds. Meanwhile, he's spit on. He's got criminals around him. We'll talk about them next week. Soldiers cast lots or gamble for his clothes. Throw dice, however you want to call it. Darkness surrounds for hours. And Jesus says seven things from the cross. And we're not going to pick them all apart, but we'll look at a couple of them in just a second. But he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise to one of the prisoners. He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. To Mary, his mom, uh, and to John, his best friend, you could say, he gives that responsibility of taking care of his mom to John. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll come back to that. He says, I thirst because he's dying. He says, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. And these are the only things he says in all of these hours on the cross. Listen to me. Jesus' death on a cross reminds us how far God would go for us and how far we are from saving ourselves. Crucifixion in some form has been around a long time. A long time before Rome. But Rome mastered it as an act of slow and painful death. They maximized the suffering through it and made it so horrible, in fact, that Roman citizens were exempt from it and, and couldn't be killed that way. The convicted are hung up naked, typically, along roads so people could see them as a warning against defying Rome. When you come into the town, that's what you would see. Crucified, they crucified people for any crime. It was, there was no, they reached a point where it didn't matter. People were being crucified for simple theft and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, so people would have seen this constantly. And these guys, when they were convicted or women, whatever, they would carry a plaque around their neck that said what their crime was as they walked out with their cross. Jesus had one around his neck and the Jewish leaders hated it. But Pilate insisted on it, in fact, so much so that when, they, when Jesus got to the cross, Pilate had it nailed on the cross, and it was in four languages, all the languages of the day, so that anybody passing by could read it. Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic were pretty much the same. So it was written in all of those, so anybody could have seen it and known what it said. So what was his crime? Murder, theft, sedition, terrorism? No. Matthew 27, look at your text there, verse 37. Over his head they put the charge, the crime, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. All four Gospels say it. Mark 15, 26, the King of the Jews. Luke 23, 38, this is the King of the Jews. John 19, 19, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Naked, beaten, where he's almost unrecognizable. Nailed to wood, dying miserably. King of Jews. Picture that in light of Jesus saying, if anyone wants to follow me, he has to take up his cross. Don't picture the pretty little, you know, jingly item. Picture that. 
Keep in mind, too, this is Passover. There's people from everywhere that are in town. I mean, all of the regulars, all of the semi-regulars, and all of the visitors. Everybody's there. And they've all brought their lambs to the temple for sacrifice. And the temple gates are wide open to the crowds and shofars are blasting. Uh, and they're singing and there's all of this. Meanwhile, outside the city wall, just outside of that, is Jesus hanging on a cross, being crucified. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sins of the very people who put him on it, hanging out there. Likely could hear it, maybe even see it from the hill. And Jesus makes two of the most incredible statements in history during these hours on the cross. The most powerful words in the Bible, per my opinion. It's not recorded in Matthew. You don't have to turn to it because you know it. But in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know about y'all, man, but beaten like that, suffering like that, and being mocked and spit on and, and at the same time, th- that's, that love is impossible, y'all. Like, that is impossible. And then look back in Matthew 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, which this is about when he's about to die here at the last end. He says, Eli, Eli, lama shabak tonight, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the most debated theology in the whole Bible. Most people fall into two camps here. Either this is very literal, and in some way, somehow, he experienced a separation from the Father in that split second when sin was placed on him and he died. So for some Milla, milla, millisecond or whatever, he's separated from the Father and he dies. Another theory is that he's teaching. That even in his death on the cross, he's still pointing to who he is. Uh, and I definitely would agree with that regardless of what you think about the first one. Look at Psalm, you don't have to turn to it because it will be up here. Psalm 22, uh, verse 1. How does it start out? Word for word what he said. Word for word, what he said. We would say, turn to Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. In their day, there was no such thing as Psalm 22, verse 1. They were given the first lines of songs. If I said, jingle bells, jingle bells, you're probably going to think what? Jingle all the way. Like, you know, you, you start thinking the song. That's the way they would think of this. This is a song, right? Psalm, song. So they would think, you sing in the first line of the song, Jesus, their brain's going to go to this psalm. Why would he want them to go to this psalm? Well, look at verse 7. It'll be up there. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, mocking. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. He delights in him. Literally what they say. You'll see it in a minute. Verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my chest, breath. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Think about what Jesus is experiencing when he's pointing to this song. Verse 16. Dogs encompass me. Dog, the use of dogs is a reference to Gentiles in a lot of cases. But he says, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have what? Pierced my hands and feet. It's not up there. Pierced my hands and feet. Pierced my hands and feet. Literally saying it. 
They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's word for word what's happening. And you've got to understand, this is written a long time before. Jesus is saying, y'all don't see this, but this moment is fulfilling Scripture. This is not just a random guy you're killing here. You know, and I can't explain it. I think both are going on when he says this in some insane way. But the point is this. H.A. Ironside, he, he said it really well. Very simple quote. He said, when we hear him cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every believer can reply, it was that I may never be forsaken. No matter how you feel, what's going on. When you hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can say, so that I'll never be forsaken. The word says so. But there's so much scripture around the cross. i give you some more. We won't go through them all, but just really quick, I'll give you a handful. Psalm 69, verse 20. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison, or gall, for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine, which means vinegar to drink. They offered Jesus that very thing on the cross. Hebrews 13, which I know this is after Jesus, but it's referring to Leviticus 16, the whole chapter. You can read it in your own time. The author of Hebrews says in verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's what Leviticus 16 talks about on the day of atonement. The scapegoat was chased outside the gate and bore the sins of the people. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, 22. Says if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he's to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. Wood. His body doesn't remain there all night on the tree, but you shall bury him that same day for a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Paul tells you that verse was pointing to Christ and his death on the cross. Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Like everything he's saying and doing is pointing back to scripture all the way through. Years of history and years and years of history. And, 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 and no matter how we understand it, the one thing we cannot miss is the cost. That's what salvation costs. That's what Eve's decision cost. And our decision, since you say, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't sin like Eve did. Well, have you sinned? If you can check the box there, then, then, then we're already in the, in the camp. So who killed Jesus? Let's, let's bring it to a, to a point here. Who killed him? Look back at your text, Matthew 27. The Jews, right? Because they demanded crucifixion. Look at Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate said to them, what do I do with Jesus who's called Christ, which means Messiah? You call him the Messiah. What do I do with this guy? They say, he's saying it to this crowd of this mob of Jews. And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot, a Jewish riot, was beginning... He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You do it yourself. And all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. 
So the Jews, right? Or is it the Romans? Because the Romans are the ones that actually did it. Look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion in front of him, Jesus. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. They're making him look like a king here entirely by holding, holding this reed and robe and, and crown. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes and led him away to be crucified. Or maybe it's us. Maybe it's mankind. I mean, we're the reason crucifixion was needed, right? Sin? 1 Corinthians 15.3, it'll be up here, but he says, For I, Paul said, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin. In accordance with what scripture said. First John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So is it? Who is it? Or is it all of the above? I'll tell you who it is. The answer was written... 700 years before the cross ever happened. 700 years before the cross ever happened is the answer to that question. Go to Isaiah 53. You can let go of Matthew and flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Isaiah is back towards the middle. Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah. Big book. Isaiah 53, in my opinion, is the most amazing chapter in the Bible. Because how far it was written ahead of what it talks about, it's mind-blowing. And I'm not going to mine this apart. We're just going to read what it says. I'll give you a little context as we go, but we're just going to read through what it says. Just read it, what it's saying at surface level. Isaiah 53, I'll start at verse 2. It says, He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Basically, the he that he's talking about here is a forgettable person. He's no superhero. He's not super masculine, uber-built dude who hits the gym on the regular. You know what I mean? He's not some kind of fairy tale looking prince. He's forgettable. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We gave him no recognition for who he truly was. In fact, people were disgusted by him, annoyed by him, irritated by him. Look back in chapter 52, the last couple of verses there, just a few verses back. You don't have to, it's just look up a little. Verse 14 Many were astonished at you. His, same person, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What do you think he looked like on that cross? After all of that beating. The king of the Jews. Despised, rejected, forgettable, not esteemed. Appearance so marred. Look at verse 4 of chapter 53. Let's keep going. Surely... Though, 
He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We figured he was cursed by God because of the way he was, because he's hanging there like that. God, he must be cursed by God, but surely he's dying where we should. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, pierced, nailed for our sins, our transgressions. He was crushed, beaten for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brings peace to us. With his wounds, we are healed of sin, of chastisement, of iniquity. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every single one. All of us to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who laid it on him? The Lord laid it on him. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But he didn't open his mouth like in front of Pilate when Pilate quizzes him the second time and he doesn't say a word. And Pilate says, are you really going to sit there and say nothing? Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears was silenced so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, because remember, this is written 700 years before. So he's saying, in the generation where this occurs, who considers that he's cut off out of the land of the living? Killed. What happens if you're cut off out of the land of the living? Dead. Why? For the transgression of my people. Nobody considers the fact, in that moment, on that cross, that he is dying there for them. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. We'll get to that next week. That's exactly what happens. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, which means what? He was innocent. And here comes our killer, verse 10. Yet it was the will of who? The Lord to what? Crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And here is when grace should punch you in the throat. He, he, the Lord, has put him to grief. If it stopped there, this is a brutal story. But it doesn't. You could... You could almost put a light or a sunshine right here at that moment. Because everything from here forward is beautiful. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What does it mean to prolong your days? He's dead. It's resurrection. He's coming back. He's going to see his offspring. He's going to see the fruit of his labor. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And out of that anguish in his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant. He'll make many to be accounted righteous. He'll bear their iniquities. And therefore, God says, I'll divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Basically, he's talking about a kingdom. Don't have time. Keep looking. Because, Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Meaning he's alive and making intercession for those people who sin. Put that in light of the most famous verse in the Bible. 
John 3.16. For what? God so loved the world that what? He gave his only son. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we become the righteousness of God. Who killed Jesus? God. God the Father and God the Son faced death together. It was pictured in Genesis. You can go back and look. When he told Abraham, take your son, your only son, and come up here and sacrifice him to me. But God provided a sacrifice at the last moment so he didn't have to do it. Nobody provided one for Jesus. When God the Father and God the Son went up there onto that hill, there was nobody providing an alternative. God the Son would die. Offered by God the Father as a sacrifice for us. However, it's deeper than that because they're one. They're, they're one. They're acting together. Jesus said in John ten eighteen, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. And the charge to do it, I received from my father. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying we're acting together, but I'm the one doing it. I'm the one doing it. And the Spirit returns life to Jesus' body. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter wrote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It must be Jesus that lays down his own life. Listen to me. Get this now. It must be Jesus. That lays down his own life. Otherwise, God is not just. Follow what I'm saying here. God's not just, if that's the case. For God to sacrifice his own son, if his son is another God, would be noble. It would be maybe, you know, brave or whatever, but it wouldn't be just. It's not right. For this person to die for this person if this person sinned on me. If you sinned against me and he volunteers to die for it, that's noble and whatever else. That's not justice. I'm the one that got sinned against. I'm the one that got sinned against. You can't just erase the penalty either because that's not just. God said, if you sin, you will surely die. He can't just make that go away or then he's a liar. Justice says, God, you, it has to go as you said. He can't allow somebody else to pay because that would be unjust too. So how does God extend grace and love but also remain just? The one sinned against dies for the one who sinned against him. The one sinned against takes the penalty for the one who sinned against him. Jesus faces death for the sins that were committed against him. That blows my mind. It, it blows my mind. Somehow they're, they're, they're acting together, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but at the same time, they're one. To sin against the Father was to sin against Jesus. To sin against Jesus, to sin against the Father and the Spirit. They're all the same. 
And so acting together, Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins, but he did it on his own. He walked up there and he laid his hand out and said, hit it. He said, I love the Father enough to bring glory to his name. I love you enough. Crosses his feet, put my feet there. Jesus' death on the cross shows us how far God will go to save us and reminds us how far we are from saving ourselves. Let me finish with this. I'm going to give you a quote. Um, John Stott got an amazing book on the cross, which is called The Cross of Christ. Highly recommend it. It's uh, lengthy, but it's amazing. But he says this in there. He says, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I've entered, this is him speaking. He says, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. Both his legs are crossed, his arms are folded, his eyes are closed, and there's a ghostly smile playing around his mouth and a remote look on his face like he's detached from all the agonies of the world. But instead, I have turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorns, mouth dry with intolerable thirst, and in darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain, And he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, and he suffered for us. Stand up with me and we're going to close. And if you don't mind, close your eyes. And again, not being dramatic, not hiding anything. I just want you to picture what I just said. And the team's coming up and we're going to do some music. There's moving around, but that's all right. Just close your eyes a second. And picture that. I'm not trying to be horrific, but let's let's face it. What does that cross mean to you? Not that jewelry. That beaten, abused, mocked person covered in spit without clothes. Is it just a, an idiot hanging there? Is it a prophet? Or is it God? And if it's God, why would he do that? And why would he look down and say, forgive him, Father. Forgive her, Father. It's because his whole purpose in being on that cross was to gain those words for you. They're just as available today as they ever were. And if you've never accepted them, I am challenging you today. Please don't walk out of here without saying, Lord, forgive me. I promise you he's alive. I promise you that grave did not hold him. His death was only part of it, and we'll talk about the other one next week. He got out of the grave. Dying is no accomplishment 
But in order to defeat death, death must happen. And how bad he died just shows how much he loves you. I pray today that you would give your life to him. Just tell him. It's real easy. You admit who you are. I know who I am. You don't have to tell me. I know right now. I struggle with sin. Just admit it. Lord, I know I'm a failure. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Believe in who he is. I can't explain it. I don't know how it works, but I trust that, the, that you're God. I trust it. I, 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 don't know, I don't know all the answers, but I trust it. It's that simple. And then you say, I know nothing I can do would ever get me there, but I trust in what you did. I trust that what you did is enough. And if you could say those things, say them to him however you want. You don't have to repeat after me. And then come tell us. Lord, I love you and I thank you again for the privilege of being in your word. I thank you that though we've talked about a lot tonight or today, this morning, that it's all in your word. It's all things that we can go back and look at anytime we want. We carry it with us everywhere. Help us honor that. Lord, thank you for the cross. This busted up drug dealer who has every right to be suffering and dead will never understand that cross, Lord. But I will never stop praising your name for it. Love you, Lord, and I'll say you things you